we are going to open up God's Word to Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you and you want to, um, we'll have verses behind us as we usually do. But if, um, if you'd like, we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning. If you've got a phone, you can pull that up as well. So I am super ultra confident that the text that we're going to look at today, regardless of whether I can preach it well or not, should speak to every single facet, aspect, issue in your life. So, you know, wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, this passage should speak to you. Unless God doesn't allow you to hear it because I do such a bad job. (laughs) But this passage really represents to me uh, the most important promise in the Bible. The most important promises in Scripture, I think, are are cried out, screamed out, yelled out, proclaimed out from this passage as good, if not better, than any other place I can think of. And every word of God is sacred and holy. So I, I, I don't mean to try to compare, but at the same time, God isn't always speaking in the same way and saying the same thing in his word. And in this passage... I feel like we're at the top of Mount Everest in terms of the greatness of what God is saying. But specifically, too, as I thought about our board retreat, what we're processing through, I think this passage is appropriate because we do come to a pivot point right now in the life of our church. And we're seeking wisdom on such a fundamental question as to continuing in this local assembly. And... You know, we, we've worked, I think, really well in the past few months, not perfectly, but really well as a board to try to push into things that God would have us push into. I thought the board retreat was really well done. Greg did a great job leading it. And I want you to know that we feel like we have a sense of our next steps, where to go, and, and a general sense of how to go there. There needs to be some sculpting and some... Some continuing to process that, but we've been working on our vision. We've been thinking about what we can do to support the church better. They've been super gracious to me, talking about how they feel like they want to try to support me better. I feel like that has in turn positioned me to want more than ever to be long to the Lord for the sake of the church and not for the sake of myself, because I sense such grace and gentleness and care from them. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance, and so does the kindness of brothers and sisters. And their love for me has made me feel more secure that, God, I can lay myself and my family on the table and say what's best for the church, what's best for my family. So there's a lot that we'd love to tell you about what we went over in the retreat, different priorities we're thinking about making first, or the new vision statement that we're working on that you guys saw some at El Shaddai. I was actually thinking about preaching on that this morning. I talked to Mike about that last night with Pam. But as I process more and prayed before the Lord about it, I I really feel like this is where God would have us right now. That really what God needs and wants to do for us most of all is not to ask us to think primarily inward. What do we think about our church? What should we do? Or for you who are not even really concerned about the church, what do I do about my job? What do I do about my marriage? What do I do? (laughs) Wherever it might be. And he doesn't want us to think primarily outward. You know, what do you think? David, what do you think? Michelle, what do you guys think? What do you all think we should do? 
those things are good and important. What God wants most of all, though, at the outset of this, this specific focused week for us of prayer and fasting is, is for our hearts and minds to be primarily upward. God, what do you want? What do you want? And who are you? <laughs> who are you to help me get there? That's where we need to start. Those other things are secondary and importantly. But, but each of us bringing our own hearts before the Lord saying, Lord, who are you and what do you want of me? And, and because of who you are, how do you get me there? As we're each doing that and really consecrating ourselves to take this seriously, speaking specifically of our church, to take our Christian life seriously, but speaking specifically of this church, to take the stewardship of this church community that God cares about, that God birthed, that God has carried along through t- tremendous joys and outward triumphs and tremendous losses and inward struggles that God still loves and cares about deeply because he doesn't count the mighty men. <laughs> when he sent Gideon to battle, I think he told Gideon to lose the thousands so he could just go with a few who had faith. That's not to say that If you leave this church, you don't have faith. It's just to say that God doesn't love us anymore as a church because we're some 70 people than he did when we were flirting with 300. He's not like us that way. But the most important thing he wants from us right now, I believe, is that as we're told over and over and over again in the scriptures from beginning to end, it's faith in him. To do whatever he's calling us to do. Faith to step away. Faith to stay. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for dependence on him. That whatever we do next, as individuals or as a church family, it would be done out of faith. Not out of fear. See, as we come to any challenge in life, the first and most fundamental and most important question is always... Do I believe God is with me and will help me? Whether you're dealing with a screaming kid or you're dealing with a parent with cancer, it's always the most important question. Do I believe God is with me and that he will help me? As we saw last week in our message on doubt, so often in scripture we come to this truth again and again. We receive what we receive from God. Whether it be forgiveness or wisdom or healing or strength, we receive it through faith. That's how God works. Not perfect faith. Faith is small as a mustard seed. The smallest of all possible seeds. But faith in him, in his character, who he is, his commitment, his faithfulness. This is the quality Faith, this is the thing that connects God's resources and God's help to you in any of your need. Faith in him, who he is truly, and faith that he will be with you to help you. This is the quality that expresses dependence, you relying on God. And God coming through. That is the quality that leads to his glory and not yours. 
That is the thing, dependence, that makes you say, not I, but the grace of God. And that's what leads to us finding rest and peace and hope and courage in the amazing grace of the one who will always, only, and ever be the source of anything good. It's only him. It's always, ever, and only him. It's never us. We're creator. We're creation. He's creator. We're jars of clay. We're leaky vessels. He's the source of pure water and strength. Grace only flows in one direction. So whatever you're dealing with, if you're dealing with a sin issue, you need to repent of this morning. If you're dealing with a trial, you need sustaining grace through. If you're dealing with a need for wisdom, if we're dealing as a church family for clarity and conviction and unity, before we engage any of those things, And any possible secondary and important good resources like study of his word, seeking counsel, or prayer, those around us, or fasting. Those are all good and important secondary means of God's grace. But the foundation, the fuel of it is always faith. Do I believe God will help me? Do I believe God is with me and for me? With even a mustard seed. So what I'd like to do this morning is to help myself and to help you say yes. Yes. I believe God is with me. And I believe God will help me. And to have that be much louder in your ears and in your hearts than other things that are always warring with it. And to have you know where to go to feast and get nourishment so that you can come back and in that war say, yes, you are with me and you will help me. And here is how I know. Here is where I can go to know again. So, starting with verse 28 in Romans 8, we'll read to verse 34. That is our text this morning. These are the very words of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, intercede for us now. Holy Spirit, intercede for us now. Father, hear the intercession of your spirit and your son. Answer the prayer we present to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Make these words alive to us again. Make these words food, spiritual food that heals us and cleans us and encourages us and sets us up for everything we need from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll take this text in two sections. Coming back to section one, I'm going to talk about God's purpose for us. What is God's purpose for us? That's what's in view in this first Three verses. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, according to his purpose. And what's that purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's a Greek generic And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, what I want us to consider here is God's purpose declared. Do you see it? God has been working from eternity to do something with you. He is working all things together for your good. And then he qualifies what that good thing is. What is the good thing that he's working That is synonymous with according to his purpose. In verse 29, we find out what is good for you. That is also his purpose for you. And it says there to be conformed to the image of his son. That is his purpose for you today. Whatever else he's doing in your life, he is working it towards that purpose. That is it. That's what the goal of discipleship is. That's what the goal of the Christian life is. That's what the goal of you are. That's what the goal of your marriage is. That's what the goal of your children is in your life. That's what the goal of your trials, your health problems, your job losses, your promotions, your good health. It's all being worked together for that purpose. So that you would be made just like Jesus. But what does that mean? Like, who is Jesus? He's, yes, he's God's son. Yes, he is God the son. But what, what was his, what is his image like as God the son when we saw him on earth? I mean, we, we can breeze through it really quick, but let's stop and think about it. I mean, this week we talked to the kids about what it means to be in God's image. So go up to my kids if you see them today and say to John, say, John, whose image are you made in? And if he says, God, give him $10. Because I told him that you would do that today. Don't hurt his little heart. Give him the $10. I'm just kidding. Um, but some of you guys are going to do it, aren't you? 
Man, he's going to be the happiest kid today. Okay, so... Um, no, you're not going to do it. Don't do it. Don't do that. Don't give him $10. Because then I'll get... Ah, oh, forget it. Tax issues. and Okay. But we asked him, what's it mean? You know, like we talked about like, does it mean that we're all going to have beards? <laughs> like, look in the mirror. Jesus had a beard. You, you just need to have a beard like Jesus. Because you're supposed to be conformed to the image of God. And Jesus is the image of God. The perfect image of God. And he's got a beard. So do we all need to have a beard? <laughs> Marie was really sad about that. No, 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 no. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? God is spirit. You're not going to worship him in Jerusalem. You're not going to worship him in a physical sense, specific limited requirements, because God's a spirit. He's invisible. He's immaterial, non-physical being. So it's the soul, the invisible, non-material being of Jesus that we're created to look like. Jesus looked like a Mideastern Semitic Jew. It's not, God's not going to turn you white people into Semitic Jewish looking people. That's white too, right? Or he's not going to turn, you know, Netherlander people. I'm just going to get in so much trouble with political correctness right now. My point is that Jesus' image is invisible. That's the image God is working on you. It's the immaterial character in your heart. And, and what did that look like? What did Jesus' image look like? That's why the Bible can write about who Jesus is and say we're communicating image. We're radiating God's glory because it's not something you see with your physical eyes. It's something you see with your invisible soul. And that is proclaimed through the word of God. As you hear Jesus' words, as you see Jesus' actions, You can see him in the most important way. Far more important than if you were standing right next to him 2,000 years ago. The Pharisees could do that, but they couldn't see him. And so God says, no, 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 no. That's not seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus is being able to see the beauty of his inner man. The beauty of his invisible soul. And as you see that, you are going to turn into that more and more and more. So what did Jesus look like on earth when we get to see him in the pages of scripture? What's he look like? Well, here's a way that I, I want to summarize this. I think about who Jesus looked like. And where God is taking you. Where he wants me to go. with Who I look like. And this is it. Jesus looked like this. He knew his father so perfectly that he loved his father above everything. He knew his father so perfectly that he loved his father above everything. He knew his father so perfectly that he loved his father above everything. And it gave him absolute, infinite delight. It gave him absolute, incredible peace. It gave him incredible joy. The image of Jesus is someone who knows how much God the Father is worth. The image of Jesus is someone who is so secure in his Father's love and delights in his Father's love that he loves giving everything to his Father and laying his whole life down for his Father. The image of Jesus is a man so delighted in pleasing his Father that he loved it more than life to the point where he died for his Father's joy. He loved it more. He loved his father more than earthly comfort, earthly pleasure, earthly fame. 
And the amazing, philosophically incredible idea is that that Jesus is also exactly who the Father is. The Father who loves the Son and wants to exalt Him above all things and finds His delight and His pleasure in the Son. So Jesus, in showing us himself and how much he loves the Father, was also pointing to the Father who lived in him. And all that Jesus did for us, his beyond comprehension, self-sacrificial love, his laying down of himself, was inextricably wrapped inside his love for his Father. That selflessness in Jesus, it was indeed the essence of his Father as well. And this supreme love for his Father, it expressed itself in love for you and I, love for others. That's what he's restoring in us. That's what he intends to shine into the world through you for all eternity. Love for God above all things, expressing itself in love for his image bearers. Love for God above all things, expressing itself in love for people, his image bearers. And he's going to do this. He is going to do this. You will one day say, I love the Lord God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind. And it is incredible. And he is worth it. And he is so satisfying. And he is so beautiful beyond anything else that whether I'm in heaven or hell, he's worth it. I wouldn't want to be in heaven without him. And if he's with me in hell, I could be there in the right way. In the sense of his love sustaining me in the worst circumstances. He is doing this. And that's why he brings terrible circumstances into your life, by the way. To teach you that he is with you in those real circumstances. And that he is enough. And even more than enough, he's actually satisfying and delightful in those awful circumstances. And then people look at you and they're like, that's not of this world. It doesn't have an explanation in our resources here on earth. He's going to do this. He decided he's going to do it long ago and he will finish it. This is the point of verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is going to take your whole life. It will take trial and struggle, sin and sorrow, wonderful blessings, life-changing revelations, one through hard-fought Heart work. And then it's going to even take you dying. The destruction of your present body. And the resurrection of your new body. To make all this happen. But it will happen. He predestined you for it. He chose you. He decided in eternity past. That this would be your future. Forever. He's already made up his mind about you. And when you believed. He justified you. He forgave you and declared you righteous in his sight for that purpose, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And one day you will stand before him glorified, resurrected, and looking perfectly in your invisible person, just like his son. Could he do anything better for you? You're going to look just like Jesus in your invisible character, in your invisible heart someday. No wonder he uses the word glorify. You are going to be glorious. But right now, we live in this little space 
in verse 30 between the word justified and glorified. That's where we live. We live in that little space between the word justified and glorified. That tiny distance on your page is your life. And in this tiny space, we struggle with enemies. The enemies of God's purpose for us. We know them well. Our sin continues to war with our hearts, tempting us and turning us from loving God, finding satisfaction in him, serving others for his sake and their sake, to using God and using people for our selfish ends. Our sin is an enemy. The world is an enemy. The world lies to us and tells us that up is down and black is white, that what's really important isn't really important, and what's not important at all is so important. Trials discourage us, present circumstances, they siren song to our hearts and lull us to escape into riches and pleasures and worries of this life that strangles our faith or strangles our sense of our need for faith. And the enemy, the devil, prowls around roaring like a lion, trying to entice us against God. He accuses God to us, lies to us about God and Revelation tells us that he accuses us before God day and night. And in some sense, whether literally or figuratively, we hear those accusations in our own heart about how awful we are and how condemned we are and how hopeless we are. He is very interested in doing that. And finally, intertwined with all of this is perhaps the greatest enemy that all these things feed. Unbelief. We talked about the importance of faith, believing God is and he's for me. Well, all these enemies conspire to destroy faith. So our greatest enemy, perhaps, or the result of these other enemies is unbelief. The opposite of trusting God. The opposite of depending on God. The opposite of being willing to put our hand in his and follow him. If we receive what we receive from God by faith, then unbelief cuts off the only hand that can receive what God gives. Unbelief closes the door on grace and opens it for Satan and his servant sin. But into that black abyss of these enemies and our lives, God declares, no, no, I will complete the work I started in you. I will work all things together for your good. I will conform you to the image of my son. I have predestined you. I have called you. I have justified you. And just as if it had already happened, it's so secure. He said, I have glorified you. It's as good as done. I have done it. How can God do this? Like, of course he's God, but no, I think God wants to answer us. How, how can he do this? How can he declare this? Because he doesn't just say it. In this passage, he explains how he can say this and why he can say this so that we really believe it when he says, I'm going to do it. I'm really going to finish this. I'm not going to let you go. So he doesn't just say, I'm going to finish it. He explains how, you know? It's like, If I walk outside and I look at my stupid, you know, thank God for this car, 2000 Saturn, you know, if I go out and look at my 2000 Saturn LS or whatever it's called and someone tells me that car 
can go 240 miles an hour. (laughs) And I say, ridiculous. And then what they do is they grab, like, they say, hold on one second. And they go around the side of my house and they pull out this army of 40 technicians. And they all... Like 40 of those people look like they really know what they're doing. And then they show me the manual of how to turn a Saturn into a Porsche 911 turbo. And then they, they show me on the phone, they show me the, the, the recording of what they did the last two days. And I can look that they've been, while I've been asleep and going to different places, they've just been working on my car. And then they take me to the car and they open the hood. And under the hood, everything says Porsche and Ferrari on it. Like the carburetor, the fuselage, the, Everything, everything's brand new. Everything's shiny and silver. There's not a trace of any Saturn component parts in there. It's all just Porsche and Ferrari parts. Well, if they did all that, it would be a lot more than just saying your car can go 250 miles an hour. I would say, oh, well, I think probably it can then. And that's what God's going to do now. He's going to say, I'm going to conform your, to the image. But now he's going to open up the hood of that promise and show us what's in the engine so that we really believe it. Let's read verses 31 to 34. God's deliverance in the gospel. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? This is God opening up the hood and showing us why his promise is true and what backs it up. Against the swords and clubs of our enemies... The devil, the world, our sin. God brings the nuclear warhead of his gospel and he blows them to tiny bits. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul saying, God is for you. God is for you. Therefore, nothing can succeed against you. This is not a hope in you. This is not a hope in anything you can do. This is not an appeal to a hope in your performance, your history, your repentance, your faith. It's not an appeal to any of those things. You do not live in that sentence. Except as a receiver. As one dependent. As one being helped. You're passive there. God is for you. That is the hope. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? These are Ferrari parts. (laughs) I just doesn't even do the word justice. Paul tells us that it was God who did not spare his own son. Paul tells us that it was God who gave him up. This love is unimaginable. Just listen for a second. This is, there's a beautiful argument I've heard from John Piper recently. John Piper argues that this passage proves 
that the greatest obstacle between you and heaven, between you and God's love, is not your sin. The greatest obstacle is not your sin, and it's not God's wrath against your sin. John Piper's saying, because we're all kind of used to hearing that. I'm used to hearing that. that The greatest obstacle between me and God is my sin and God's wrath and anger against my sin. Those are real things. God, my sin is an obstacle. And God's justice and his righteous anger at my sin is an obstacle to God's love. But Piper makes the amazing point that what this passage is really saying is that the greatest obstacle between you and God's love for you is his love for his son. That what God had to really overcome was to say, do I love you enough to do what I have to do to ask my son to do this horrible thing? To ask him to suffer what he really has to suffer? Did God love you enough that he would not spare his own son, but instead did he love you enough to freely give him to you and give him up for you. And the father and the son said, yes, we do love them that much. I was at the hospital this week with the Vegas. David and I drove Edgar or Edgar Jr. is recovering at home. And is it okay if I just, I'm putting you on the spot now. <laughs> but Edgar had a bad fall, and thank God his life was preserved. But me and Edgar Sr. were talking. And Edgar Sr. said, I wish I could have taken the fall. I would rather I take the fall than my son. I wish I could do that. And then Edgar stopped himself, but he said, but no. And it, this, is, this is the measure of a man. Edgar said, no, but it's good for my son. This is what God said should happen to my son. And I, he needs this. And it's good. But I wish I could take it. <laughs> but I know it's good for him. So I'm going to... Essentially, Edgar's saying, I'm releasing my son to my heavenly father. He knows what's best for him. But man, I wish I could take the pain. And I just feel the wrestling of God, the Father, and the Son in that. You know, I I used to ask myself, why didn't the Father come down and die for us and spare the Son? And I don't think it's wrong to wonder if it wasn't more painful for the Father, who is selfless love, to let his Son be the one. That he would say, I wish... I was doing this because of the pain you're feeling. And it, 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 it's so grieving to me that is it possible that the one who is selfless love finds it harder watching someone else go through pain than if they could just take that pain for themselves. And I know we're getting into the mystery of the Godhead, but God didn't do, the Father didn't escape any pain in any way that should make us question his love for his son or for us in letting his son die. It's possible that it, It was the worst thing that anybody went through on that day. I don't know the mysteries of the Godhead. And they're one. You know, it's, it's a mystery. But it's possible that, I asked myself, is it possible that no one suffered more pain than the Father that day? And Edgar would say, I wish I could take that pain. That's more painful. It would be better for me. I would be happier. 
So this is God's unimaginable love for you. In order to save you from his wrath, in order to save you from an eternity separated from him in hell, in order to save you from being captive to your trash and your sin, in order to save you from not being his people, but being his enemy and contemptuous to him and not being his child, in order to do that, in order to save you from belonging to the devil, in order to do that, he gave up his son for you because he loved you so much. He wasn't willing to spare his own son. That's his love for you. He gave up the person as treasured to him as any person could be. He gave up his precious, innocent, perfectly loving, perfectly righteous, glorious, divine boy. If I may put it in those colloquial terms, he gave up his boy for you. Who he loved with all of his heart. He gave him up to be crushed. With all of our sin and all our iniquities. One writer wrote, to paraphrase, you would almost think that God loved us more than his own son. And now Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Okay, if that's who God is, if that's the lengths to which he's gone to rescue you from an eternity without him, If that's the character of our God, if that's the caliber of his love and the character, the the caliber of his character. if, If he was willing to do such a difficult thing for you, is he not going to be willing to do everything that's much, 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 much infinitely easier in comparison? If he do this for you, is he going to be unwilling to do What will always be in comparison much less difficult for him. If God did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him give you everything. Everything else you need. Will you believe that? See Paul is trying to create faith in us through the Holy Spirit. He's not just telling us something amazing. He is trying by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to create faith and real belief in us so that we can receive all these things. Because that's how we do receive them by depending on God, not by hearing his promises and walking away. John Flavel says of this promise, if if he surely if he would not spare this own son, one stroke one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that he ever should, after this, deny or withhold from his people. For whose sakes all this was suffered. Any mercy, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. He won't do it. Flavel is saying that everything that comes into your life as a child of God, what feels good and what feels bad, car accidents and best friends, cancer and promotions, grandchildren and infertility, persecution and pay raises, God is going to use it for your good. God is using it for your good. God has ordained it and is committed to be faithful to you through all these things so that it will all 
like 75 different instruments in an orchestra create and be orchestrated together to create one song. You are being made into Jesus. You are being made into the image of Jesus, into his beauty, into his glory, into his satisfaction in the Father. That's what he's asked. That's what he's after. If God, if God doesn't care about Jesus' suffering, if God thought it was a light and easy thing to hand him over for you, then he's not really going to be caring about preserving you through your trials and temptations and sin battles. But since nothing meant more to him than his precious son, so we know he'll be faithful to those other things. So we know that he'll be faithful to his son. He will be faithful to what his son did for you. He won't hold it in contempt. He won't consider it a light thing. He won't undignify it by not coming through and all these other things that we need. Every faithful promise of God given to you is God's way of saying, my son is worth it. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, what do you need? What do we need? What do I need to be conformed to his image? We've got it. If God gave up his son for it, is he going to withhold it from you and me? He's not. He's not. The past grace that Jesus won with his blood secures the future grace that you need to follow him right now. The past grace that Jesus won with his blood secures the present, the future grace, all the grace that you need to follow him right now. This is audacious, amazing grace. And look at this. Paul shows us more under the hood. 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Can I just, as an aside... I don't want to go on and on and on and on. And I need to like grow. But one of the things that's hard for me as a pastor is when I get to this place and I start sensing God's truth, the last thing I want to do is try to finish up the message. You know, I'm liable to make the CM workers work for three more hours because I just, it's like, I need to get this. I want you to get this. And I know there's other things to, to do. But one of the reasons why I'm hoping we can continue to get to El Shaddai is so that we can have four-hour sermons. (laughs) No superintendents will kick us out, and the CM will be so easy with these rooms. I can just preach hours, and you guys will just be like, yeah. I'm just kidding. I am. But back in the day, right, you old-time CLCers, if there's any still left... Two hour plus, right? Oh man. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Look at verse 40, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Let's just hold on to these verses. Listen, all honest and true charges against us for our sin. Every true accusation that could keep God's faithfulness to you flowing? 
Jesus has already taken care of. No one can justly condemn you because Jesus has already been condemned in your place. Again, who's absent from here? Who's the passive player in this? Who's simply just standing back receiving? You. Who's doing all the work? Who's paying the whole bill? Him. You just get here. You just receive here. You, you don't do any. You, your, your heart or your performance is not involved in this. Those aren't the things that free you from condemnation. Your good works, your repentance, your faith. It's, it's none of that. That would doom us. It's nothing in ourselves. It's God's good work in the gospel. Jesus was condemned. And now to condemn us would be unjust and an insult to Jesus' infinitely beautiful, sufficient sacrifice. For God to condemn you wouldn't simply be doing something mean to you. It would be doing something disgusting and horrifying and contemptible to his son. Do you understand? The bigger injury in you being abandoned by God would fall on his son. Being disgraced that his sacrifice wasn't enough. Paul goes on, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Jesus' everlasting life, as we sang about, guarantees that every moment of your life and beyond this life, he is thinking and carrying you to his father right now. His ministry did not end on Calgary. In some ways, it was, it, was, it was initiated there. So this is it. This past grace of Jesus, one, one for us with his blood, all the grace that we need, present, future. So what's our application here? Just coming back to some things we talked about. Over and over, the Bible describes faith in God, depending on God in his promises as the key that unlocks the experience of every other grace that we need. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We're protected by faith. We stand firm in the faith. We experience the powers, the Spirit's power by faith. We move spiritual mountains by faith. We, we ask and receive by faith. We approach God boldly with faith. We fight the fight of faith. We're told the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. We're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're told that we call God a liar when we deny the faith. That when Satan came to sift Peter, Jesus did not protect Peter's performance, but he protected Peter's faith. We're told that when the devil prowls around roaring like a lion, we are to resist him by standing firm in the faith. Faith. Don't misunderstand, though. This isn't faith in our faith. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not the demonic faith of name it, claim it. If I can just work up enough faith, I'll, I'll be healed. It's not faith for fancy cars or mansions or a trial-free life. It's faith, even the smallest mustard seed of faith in who God is. In his character. That's why it's so important to read your Bible. Because it's there that you find out where you can put your faith in God and where you're putting faith in something God's not going to underwrite for you.
And remember, even the hand that reaches out, I believe, help my unbelief. That hand is clasped by a merciful God who says, be merciful to those who doubt. There's a lot more I could say. I really do want to be careful. Let me try to close with this. What is it among the all things that God promises to give you that you need to keep going in following Jesus? Just today. Just take today. Like, let's not overcomplicate it. In fact, he commands us, just take today. Nathan, just today. <laughs> Daryl, you can think about 10 more years. Just think about today. You know, that, that's what he says to us. Buzz, you told me this a couple of weeks ago. You told the whole church this. So what do we need today? You know, do you need patience with your kids? Do you need humility? Because you just feel like your pride is just going to beat you down and beat somebody else up. Do you need hope? Do you need power to keep a pure heart? Do you need strength against laziness? Do you need courage to witness to somebody? Then begin to plead with God according to the blood-bought promise we're beholding today. If he promises, no sin will overcome you, but what is common to man, and I will provide a way of escape out of the temptation so that you can endure under it, and you say, God, you said you're not going to spare anything I need. But you're going to give me this because your son bought it for me with his blood. You promised. If he promises, he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you're fearful that you're going to fall away from God and you're crushed by that fear. Plead his promise. All things that you need. All things will be given to you. Jesus, you bought this. Father, honor the blood of your son by giving me hope to keep believing you. If he says, if you fathers who are evil know how to give good things to your children when they ask you, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Plead that promise as one of the all things. Lord, I need more of your spirit. You said you'd give me all things along with the blood of your son. Honor the blood of your son by giving me more of your spirit. If he says, your great high priest sympathizes with you, with all your weakness, and is interceding for you to give you the grace and mercy right now for the asking, plead that promise and say, God, this is one of the all things that Jesus' blood, honor the blood of your son by giving me the grace and mercy I need right now through his sympathy. God has an infinite storehouse of blood-bought gifts for us that daily he longs for us to believe him for and ask him for. And we, we, when we come to him for those good things, he's bought with the blood of his son because he loves you and because he will not hold his son's blood in contempt. His answer is yes. John Piper writes, every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs, all his true needs, 
right? I don't necessarily need that house or that car or that girlfriend or that job. I might get those things as part of what you're doing, but all things that I need, patience, peace, joy, faith, courage, hope, repentance, perseverance, food. I need spaghetti. I do. I need protein. I need carbohydrates. I need clothes. I need a roof over my head. God knows that. Until he calls me home, he's got to provide for me. But every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. Every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs or her needs finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, what he hears is yes. God, do you love me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Will you accept me? Yes. Will you help me change? Yes. Will you give me power to serve you? Yes. Will you keep me? Yes. Will you show me your glory? Yes. And he still says yes every time we truly ask him. What I want for our church is to serve God. I want the humility that I don't have sourced in myself to say to you all, whatever it takes for your spiritual good going forward and the spiritual good of my wife and my kids, I want that to be the motivation for what we do next or what we ask you to do next or what we encourage you to do next. That's what I need. I need humility and I need wisdom and I need courage and I need love. I need all that stuff. What do you need to know whether you're to continue with us? Whether we're, if we say, guys, we really believe God wants us to walk into this next step. A step of rebuilding and El Shaddai and vision and all this, some goodies that we have that are, it's all going to be imperfect. But there it is. What will you need from God to do that? Well, before any of that, what will you need to say, God, is this wise, right? You'll need wisdom to know. Is this for me? Is this not for me? But don't we all want to do what God wants? Like, don't we want that? It not to be about our circumstantial comfort. We want that glorious character of Jesus to grow in us. So that our response to this pivotal moment in our church's history is, is a response of faith that looks like Jesus coming out of us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what everybody wants? Whether you stay or go, that's what I want. And you know what? I don't got it. I don't have that in myself. I'm scared that I won't produce that. I won't have that. And Jesus today says to me, garbage, baloney. I have what you need, Albert. And God says, Albert, I slayed my son. I tore open his wrists and his hands. And I let him be beat to a pulp and crushed. And I let his blood spill it all over the ground. Am I going to not give you what you need to walk through this? He's going to. He's going to give it to us. <sighs> Amen.
Dawid, would you have faith to pray for us as I stand over there and ask us to sing one more song? Yeah, would you pray for us? Father God, thank you for promising to perfect the good work you started in us. Thank you for giving us totally undeserved your son. Thank you for helping us to hear that even more deeply uh, this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Overflow through us with your spirit and the good message, the good news message of Christ. Dead, buried, and raised again for the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.